morning, everyone. Great to be here with you. If you've got your Bibles or your electronic thingamies, then uh, see if you can find Jude. It's, it's nearly, very nearly, the end of the Bible. So it's the last but one book, just inside Revelation. Well, not inside, you know, but you know what I mean. So uh, while, while you're looking, let me just say thank you so much to those of you who brought contributions this morning. You won't know how encouraging it was for me to hear the things that you said. Um, probably you won't pick up necessarily from what I'm going to say, how, they tied it, how it tied in, uh, but uh, believe me, it was a real encouragement from my point of view that the things that you said tied into what I had in my head, even if they don't come out of my mouth. So Jude, um, we're going to work on Jude's doxology, which is actually the last couple of verses of his letter. But I'm going to start reading from verse 1. I'm not going to read it all, but just a few uh, verses as a bit of an introduction. So starting at verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Did you notice how Jude addresses the Christians, the believers that he's writing to as called, loved by God, kept by Jesus, kept for Jesus. He doesn't say, you, you have been working hard, you have been doing these things. No, he says, you're, you're called, you're loved, you're kept by Jesus. And I want to just bring that to your attention because it becomes relevant as we look at the last verses. And it's interesting how Jude, you see, changed his mind about what he was going to write that God spoke to him and said, no, 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 don't write about that. Write about this, because he'd identified that there was false teaching coming into the church. People had infiltrated the church and brought, were bringing a challenge to faith, and Jude wanted to address this. And the rest of the, the, his uh, letter, which is very short, addresses that. And we know from looking back, uh, through church history, we know what that false teaching was. We know that it was Gnosticism, which basically means having knowledge. And uh, the teaching of Gnosticism was that matter, so everything that around us, everything that we are, was inherently evil. And the good sort of divine spirit was trapped within that matter, within that material be, um, around us, and it could only be released through 
knowledge. That may sound a bit strange to us, but you know, it could well have been a sort of human response to what Paul identified in Romans 7, you know, where he said, wretched man that I am, the good that I want to do, I don't do. But the evil wrong things that I don't want to do, they're the, thing, the very things that I do. And it's like there's this battle going on. And this teaching, which wasn't the right answer to the problem, gave rise to two different outcomes. One was antinomianism. That's a word to get your mouth around, isn't it? Get your lips around that one. Don't worry about it. it uh, but let me tell you what it, what it was. Basically, what it said was, well, if everything is evil, and that means my body is evil, so there's no obligation on me to comply with the law. So I can do whatever I like. Hence the licentiousness that Jude identified. He said, this is what they're teaching. This is what they're bringing into the church. The other outcome, quite opposite to that, was asceticism, which is basically, I'm going to beat my body, I'm going to abuse my body, I'm going to bring it under control and tell it who's boss. I'm going to make the good win by abusing my body. Now, when I was preparing uh, this message, I, I came across... A, a sermon by John Piper. In fact, it was the last sermon he preached before he handed over responsibility for his church and he retired. And uh, if, if it hadn't been an hour long, I would probably have scrapped what I was going to say and just let you listen to it because it's brilliant. But there's this phrase he came up with which I thought was so helpful in relation to what we've just been talking about. He said this, they don't prize the God of grace. Instead, they prostitute the grace of God. They don't prize the God of grace. Instead, they prostitute the grace of God. And that sort of sums up what Jude was wanting to attack and to say, no, don't go with this. So that's a sort of brief overview. You may think it was very brief, but it was. Um, of Jude. So let's head towards the end of the book to verses 24 and 25, and let me read them to you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. Amen. That's not the end. That's just, the way it's, that's just what it says in here. <clears throat> now, a doxology is a, is a song of praise. It's made up of two Greek words. The doxo bit is glory. The logos bit at the end is word or saying. So it's a glory saying. It's a song of praise. But you know, I, I learned from John Piper that doxologies have a particular um, structure to them. They're in two parts. 
So the first part describes the actions of God. And the second part ascribes the attributes of God that account for those actions. Oh, wow, that's amazing. So, you know, we might say, now to him who looks after the poor, the destitute and the lonely, to him be compassion and mercy and kindness. Bear the attributes of God that bring about those actions. And that's what we find in this Jude doxology, that his glory, his majesty, his dominion and his authority are the attributes of God that enable him to keep us from stumbling and make us stand in the presence of his glory. Let's look at it a little bit more detail, phrase by phrase. Now to him. It starts with God. A bit like the Bible. The Bible starts with God. You know, right back in Genesis, in the beginning, God. He just introduces himself. There's no explanation. He's just there. Or the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And then later in the beginning of the New Testament, John, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there, in just three verses, is the Trinity presented, not explained. You just have to have faith that there is a God. You see, in Hebrews, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. We have to believe. And so we have to start with God and believe. But this belief is not passive. Yeah, yeah. Believe in God? Ah, yeah, why not? I believe in God. It's a big deal. Doesn't make any difference to me. Nor is it a sort of one-off thing that may have happened in the past. Yeah, I went to Sunday school and yeah, I believed in God and you know, but any difference to me now. Gone all about that. No, this this belief is active, it's life-changing, it's moment by moment trusting in this God. So how is that possible? Well, Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. You've got to start afresh. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I am a new creation. You are a new creation if you're a believer. You have been born again. You've got a fresh start. You believe. You have faith. And so, as we look at the rest of verse 24, we're looking at the things that God is doing, he is able to do through these amazing attributes of his. But it starts with God. Now to him who is able, here's another Greek word for you, dunameo in, the, in here, which comes from Dunamis, yeah? Is that a word you've heard? Power. <laughs> Becky's going, yeah, yeah, I know that one. <laughs> power. <laughs> God. He's a God of power. He's a God of authority. 
He's a God of strength. And you know, there's a difference between power and authority. You see, we, we have no authority over this school at all. But we hire this room and we have authority to use it in the way that we want to. We can put the chairs out. We can use the water. We can turn the lights on and use the electricity. We can go and use the classrooms so the kids work. We've been given, we've been granted that authority by the school. But even though we have the power, we can't go upstairs and take out all the tables and chairs and put them out on the lawn. We don't have the authority to do that. We have the power, but we don't have the authority. God has all authority over heaven and earth, over everything, over everything you can possibly imagine. God has authority. He has power and he has strength. Now, when it says who is able, it doesn't sort of mean, well, he's able, but he may not turn up. He's able, but, but don't bank on it. He's able, but, you know, don't rely on him. No, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that. There, there is an essence of interest and care in the power of God. Who is able and wants to be involved. He wants to help. Now to him who is able, what? To keep you from stumbling. Now that word keep, it sort of means guard. And it's used a couple of other times in the New Testament. It's used at the beginning of Luke, where it says there were shepherds in the field keeping watch of their flocks. You know, when the announcement of Jesus' birth was made and, and the angels came, the shepherds were keeping watch. They were guarding their sheep. They hadn't locked them away in a barn so they couldn't get out and do anything. No, they were out on the fields. They were able to eat the grass. They were able to go and get a drink. They could play games together, have a little game of chess. And the shepherds looked after them. They kept watch. They guarded them. And it's the same word used in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, where he says, I was keeping them in your name, talking about the disciples. I guarded them. Now, Jesus didn't cotton wool his disciples. He certainly didn't lock them away and guard them in a prison. In fact, he, he gave them some pretty challenging things to do. He said, oh, look, is this all these people? Well, you feed them. There's only 5,000. He said to Peter, just, just step out of the boat and walk on water. He said to the disciples, I'm, I'm sending you out. If you could just go out and heal the sick and raise the dead. He didn't, he didn't mollycoddle his disciples. But he, he says to the Father, I, I kept them. I guarded them. I looked after them. So it's not a prison that we're put in when he keeps us and he guards us and he keeps us from stumbling. Literally, it means without stumbling. Now, Liz and I were on holiday a few weeks ago up in Yorkshire and we were out walking and, you know, we were walking along this path and I'm not sure what it was. There was a, perhaps a, 
a stone or a tree root or a branch or something and we're walking on. And Liz went like this. You know what I said to her? Be careful. <laughs> that was helpful, wasn't it? <laughs> Maybe a bit late. You know, if I'd have said it two or three seconds before, possibly it may have been helpful. Look, 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 they've just watched there. Don't don't trip over that. No, I waited till after she'd stumbled. <laughs> sort of man that I am. And care for my wife. So how does God keep us from stumbling? Well, if you've got your Bibles, turn back just a few pages to the second uh, letter of Peter. Just, I've gone too far. Second Peter chapter 1. There's this magnificent passage that explains to us how God keeps us from stumbling. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the... Let me just stop there a moment. Did you get that? Did you hear what I just said? His divine power has granted to us... Everything, everything pertaining to life and godliness. There's sort of nothing missing out of that, is there, in that everything word. It's all in there. So his divine power has granted to us, that's you and me, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, we know what life is. We live it every day, don't we? But what's, what's godliness? Well, I came across this great um, definition conforming to the laws and wishes of God. Conforming to the laws and wishes of God. That's pretty challenging, keeping to the laws of God, isn't it? But the wishes of God. So, you know, when, when he says, uh, I want you to uh, go and be part of a church plant in Berlin. Actually, where, where is Josie? Can't see her anywhere. Ah, she's in Berlin. Why is she in Berlin? Because she's demonstrating godliness. She's conforming to the wishes of God. He spoke to her and she's gone. This is what Jesus did. He lived his life like that, following the things that God wanted him to do. And we have the power to do that because God has granted it to us. Let's read on. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the... Sorry, I've got to stop again. Did you get that? You might become partakers of the divine nature. Let that settle a moment. Partakers of the divine nature. So when we talked about being born again, when we talked about being a new creation, what do we get? 
we get some of the attributes of God. The very nature of God is implanted in us. It's mind-blowing. We are partakers of the divine nature. The very attributes of God are at work in us. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason. So that's the reason. We've got divine power and we've got the divine nature. Now, for this very reason, applying all diligence. Now, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Because diligence sort of implies hard work. You know, it's doing something thoroughly or well. When I looked it up, it said, this is an adverb that goes with hard and careful work. Hang on, we've just been given power, divine power and divine nature. Where's the hard work come in? Have a look. In your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. Oh, has that godliness come up again? And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Goodness me, it's tiring just reading it, let alone doing it. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. Hang on, we haven't got to do it. We've got to get better at them. We've got to do them more. They're increasing. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. I'm not surprised. I was like, wow, that's a tiring list, isn't it? Oh, here's my bit. For he who lacks these qualities needs to try harder. No, no, it doesn't say that. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So if you lack those qualities, you don't have to try harder. You have to remind yourself that you've been forgiven of your sins. That's interesting, isn't it? Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about your calling. Sorry, his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things. So it's not practicing those that hard list that I read out. It's practicing remembering that you're forgiven, remembering that you're called, and remembering that you're chosen. And then what? You will never stumble. Wow. So I haven't got to do all those things. I haven't got to try harder. I haven't got to work really hard. What have I got to do when I find myself stumbling? I've got to remember that I'm forgiven. I've got to remember that I'm called. I've got to remember that I'm chosen by God. That's interesting. That's what Jude said right at the beginning. He said, you're called. You're loved. You're kept by Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 10, it says this, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. 
Isn't that amazing? So we have the potential not to stumble. We have the potential not to sin. We have the potential to live our lives in a godly way, carrying out the laws and wishes of God. How? Trying a bit hard. No. We just have to remind ourselves who we are in Christ. I have no ability to do these things. But he does, and he's given me his divine power. He's given me his very nature. I have no ability to provide a way of escape when I'm challenged. He provides the way of escape and gives me the power to take it. What amazing salvation. It's pretty good, isn't it? Now, it's, that's not the end. Oh, I mean, Peter, hang on, let me go back to Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Now we, we talk about the presence of God, don't we? And we talk about enjoying the presence of God. You know, we, we, we might come away from this meeting and say, that was great, God was there. We really sensed his presence with us. You know, when you pray, when you're off on your own praying, oh, God met with me. I really sense the presence of God. When there's two or three, we claim the presence of God and say, yes, he's here with us. That is not what this is talking about. This is talking about that moment when we stand in the presence of his glory on that day, now, I think I'm more likely to kneel or possibly lay flat on my face on the floor. What does it say? It says he makes you stand. How is it possible that we can stand in the presence of God? Well, it's because we have no fear. We have no shame. We have no condemnation. It's not, we don't stand there arrogant. Oh, well, hey, look at me. You remember me? You know, all that stuff I did. No. We stand there accepted under the name of Jesus. We are clothed in his righteousness. Now, have you ever thought about that phrase? Sometimes I think of it as me in my mess and my muck and my mire, and I've got this lovely thing over me that tricks God into thinking I'm righteous. It's not like that at all because I've been born again. I'm a new creation. I am completely transformed and I'm righteous. I'm not covered up. I'm not tricking God. I'm not putting something on like an invisibility cloak. You know, he can't really see the real me. No, I'm righteous before him because that's what he has done for me. And we stand there blameless or unblemished, some of the translations say. You know, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, when, when you wanted forgiveness of your sins, you had to present a sacrifice, and it had to be presented unblemished. It may have been a lamb or a goat or a pigeon, but it had to be unblemished because that was the requirement 
to take away your sins. Now, under the new covenant, I can't stand unblemished, but somebody else has. Somebody who came in the form of man, but was born of God. One who carried out the laws of God and the wishes of God, who said, I, I only do what I see the Father doing. Even on that night, that in the shadow of the cross, he said, take this cup pass, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, let your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. He carried out the wishes of God. You know, it may have been physically the nails that held Jesus' body to the cross, but that wasn't what kept him there. It was his determination to carry out the will of God so that he could be the unblemished sacrifice for us that we can stand before the presence of God, blameless, with great joy. I tell you, that's something to get rejoicing about, isn't it? That's something to be happy about. That's something to, be, uh, to, to fill our hearts with joy, that we can stand before the presence of his glory, blameless. This is our hope. This is our certainty. And we know, because we have a deposit of the Holy Spirit who lives within us now, that guarantees that that is going to happen. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Amen.